Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to the Synchronicity Podcast. I'm your host, Destin. I am Kobe. We're back here today for the official start of the podcast. Last week's episode was sort of a pilot episode for where we want to take things. But this is episode one in, in all of its glory. Kobe, how are you doing? Uh, I'm, I'm pretty good. Great. Good to hear. Uh, how are you? I, I'm, I'm, I am excellent. You know what? I am excellent. I am, I'm terrific. You excited to uh, talk about the movie this week? I'm very excited to talk about the movie this week. Uh, and that is that leads us into the next portion of all of this. Uh, we watched a movie together this week uh, as a topic of discussion. It's a, a pretty uh, not so well-known movie. Kobe, what did we watch? Uh, Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard. So I, I was obviously being entirely facetious, but we, we watched Sunset Boulevard. We have, a, I'm sure, a lot to say about it. It, I, I actually haven't heard Kobe's thoughts on it. He hasn't heard mine. So uh, right alongside us, you're going to discover how we felt about it and what our thoughts are. I also wanted to take some time in this episode to touch on some of the recent news coming out of the entertainment world. Uh, in the year of Corona, you know, there's, there's really not much happening. But what is happening is very interesting. Uh, the landscape of movies and Hollywood and how we view movies is, is really changing. And it's, it's changing in interesting ways. So I wanted to start off this segment by discussing HBO Max and Warner Brothers, their, their move to release all of their new movies through 2021 on HBO Max directly at the same time as the theater releases. Kobe, do you have any thoughts on, on, on this, this news? Well, I guess it's, it's certainly not surprising to me because of the, the recent huge, like, um, I wouldn't say revitalization. I'd say it's, it's a good start for streaming now. Streaming's really, you know, coming forward and the pandemic, I think, kind of just sped up that process i think this was the way it was going but obviously um not being able to leave your homes kind of makes that come a lot faster um i think it's a little sad because i i don't think there's any anything quite like going to a theater and seeing something um on like a huge screen and you know the atmosphere of that but i don't know at the same time i guess it's just how things go. Um, movies have been changing since their inception. And uh, if this is the next evolution, then, you know, I guess it is what it is. Right. And I think we'll touch on this more when we get to discussing our, our movie we watched this week. But Hollywood and the movie industry, um, any aspect of creative art is always evolving and always changing. Um, this This move to streaming as you said, was always inevitable. Um, I, I think that the fact that it's happening now makes sense. I think it's really interesting that they're deciding to simultaneously release in the theaters and on the streaming platform. And, and not even as VODs. These aren't like releases that you have to pay extra money for. As long as you have HBO Max, 
you're going to be able to watch these movies. And I mean, there are some big releases coming up that are are coming straight to HBO Max. You have uh, Denny Villeneuve's Dune, Tenant, which while already having aired in the theaters, is is now coming to HBO Max. Um, the uh, the entire like upcoming DC library. I don't even know how many movies that is that we we know of now. It's, uh, it's the next Suicide Squad movie, uh, the Snyder Cut, which I mean, you know, <laughs> uh, Wonder yeah. Woman 1984, The Batman, uh, which I think is probably the only one that you and I are really excited about. Right. Yeah. Robert Pattinson. Right. I, I mean, the trailer looks interesting. I think it's a return to form for that kind of like dark realistic Batman movie over this over the top CGI mess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the matrix four, that's another big one. Mm. So, I mean, th- these are like big, big, big releases. These would be huge box offices. Right. Um, and so I think it's really interesting that instead of doing like the VOD route and still putting them on HBO Max, but charging an extra amount. They're not going that way. They're, they're just putting it directly on the streaming service. And I think that's a smart decision. I think that they're trying to justify the entry price of HBO Max. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a good decision, but, and, and the news that I really wanted to touch on because it's, it's much more of a, a recent discovery in the, in the news cycle. They, they being Warner Brothers, neglected to tell their directors that they were going to be doing this. And so this is big news because you have Christopher Nolan and and Denny and several others obviously and probably rightfully quite upset that they weren't informed of this. They were given no prior decision in the matter. It was like right alongside the rest of us. They're hearing this news. And that, I mean, that's, that's pretty shady, I think. Yeah, because I mean, like, especially uh, Christopher Nolan uh, and what was it? Villeneuve. Villeneuve. I, uh, yeah. Uh, These are directors that um, I wouldn't say like, I guess, popcorn flicks, because that's like, I guess could be considered, you know, sort of, derogatory in that way but they're they're definitely made yeah yeah they're made to be enjoyed in in a very large theater or like in 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 a very grand kind of showing so obviously uh restricting that to a streaming service takes all the oomph out of it and uh i guess maybe messes with the vision that the director had originally right and i i mean i don't think by any means do we uh, agree with Christopher Nolan in in trying as hard as he did to release Tenant in the midst of a pandemic, but I also think it's it's easy to understand why they're upset. Um, and I I, I I think it's really shocking that these movies are they're they're really the the lifeblood of these directors. You know, they they pour so much of themselves into making them. They're like their children. And I mean, no love for the corporation, but 
for Warner Brothers to turn around and and do this and not consult them first is troubling. Yeah. It's I think it definitely sets like a precedent about I don't know, I guess directors should definitely expect at this point that their movies are going to be shown on streaming services rather than theaters, which uh, I guess for a lot of a lot of directors might completely change their vision or uh I guess rather the way that we are going to consume that vision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and you, and you do have more than a few directors who are embracing streaming. We, we did touch on, I'm thinking of ending things in the last episode. Um, Charlie Kaufman's new movie, obviously. Uh, he, you know, he, he embraced the streaming platform as a method of delivery for getting this movie made. And I think we're going to see that happening a lot more, but you're going to have these kind of, you know, old guard directors like Christopher Nolan, who they, they want to maintain and they want to, they want people to continue to experience that movie going experience. Yeah. Um, and like I said, I, I admire that. I think it's, it's noble in some ways just because, um, as I said, I don't think there is much better than like being in a theater and being able to watch something like that because it, you know, you get the best audio and visuals, whatever. But, um, yeah, I mean, things change and most likely there's going to be a lot of, uh, moving over to streaming. And I, it feels like there's, there's this idea that it's all going to pass over once the pandemic's over, but I don't, I don't, you know, I don't think, think so. That's, yeah, and I definitely think like this is the this is the next step. This isn't just this isn't just because of the situation we're in. It's been sped up by that situation, but um, I think directors kind of just need to expect that now. And like you said, uh, Charlie Kaufman uh, kind of using Netflix to get his film made. I think that could be a good thing. Um, I think it, it's going to be really good for smaller directors, indie directors, mm-hmm. um, because Netflix and all these streaming platforms, they have budgets to go around and they're maybe not, they're maybe not going out looking for the next blockbuster. You know, they're, they're, they're much more willing or so it seems to fund smaller, more creative projects. I mean, obviously you get a mixed bag of content it's not all uh, amazing works of art sure but i right. i do think the platforms do they, they they do they give a place for this kind of content to exist yeah they definitely need to like worry less about not having big and exciting movies because like netflix gets like 30 plus releases every single month not i mean not in like all um netflix originals but they have a lot of room there to have like a majority of things netflix is still making an incredible amount of money despite all of the terrible netflix originals Mm -hmm. so you can have i'm thinking of ending things and uh i don't know stranger things um and like other other netflix originals that are like good and well received and then you can have all these bad ones and Netflix doesn't really worry about that so I don't really think it matters all that much anymore um, about how big your movie is um, 
I think it's definitely going to be nice for smaller directors. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think we can, we can pivot this part of the conversation into our thoughts on if they're in this new streaming world of movie delivery, will there still be a place for big budget Hollywood blockbusters? You know, like will, will there be something as impactful and huge in the cultural zeitgeist as the MCU again? Will that happen again? Or is it going the route of streaming and maybe we'll see a few blockbusters here and there? I think that's a hard question because something like Infinity War or Endgame were, you know, they're fine if you watch them in your house. But really, that's being in the theater and like being with all these other people, all these other fans, um, you know, you're all gathering together for this kind of huge cultural event. It's like the significance definitely feels um, neutered when it just pops up onto Netflix one day or something like that. So, yeah. Well, and you know, I think as much as we're, we, you and I are embracing the world of streaming. I do think that, we both hope and expect that theaters will come back in some capacity. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that maybe going forward, there, there might be room for smaller theater experiences, uh, you know, like little art collective theaters, if that makes any sense, where they, where they pick out these little indie darlings and they show that instead of these big budget blockbusters. I'm sure there will always be a place for that, for the Megaplex experience. But what I really want to see out of theaters is is a place where you can go to see the the kind of movies that you're seeing at Sundance or Cannes mm-hmm. or, or TIFF, anything like that. I, I, I want that kind of system for theaters because you're right seeing those big budget blockbusters on the big screen that's kind of crucial i think it's part of the experience um but just as much i think that there's something really awesome really beautiful about going and seeing a movie with a hundred and other people who've never seen the movie and experiencing at the same time as them all of the like hits and beats of the story and the the filmmaking and the technical experience and the the love and care that went into it and that's i feel like the best way to experience these little indie gems too i mean yeah you can only hope i guess um i've i've been wanting to go to like a film festival for for a while now and um i guess the idea of of having smaller theaters um maybe replace the bigger theaters and, and just showing these these um lesser known or maybe more more challenging uh films is exciting i don't know that it's going to happen as like as broadly as we may want mm. but the idea is certainly exciting yeah yeah i mean it it would just be it would nice it would be nice to see these movie chains you know that they're they're so big, they're so they're spread out, they're franchises. It would ne- be, it'd be nice to see those break down a little bit and get picked up by smaller groups who are interested in showing uh, the art of cinema. It's it actually reminds me. Um, 
like early early 1900s there was um the whole problem with movie theaters having a sort of monopoly on the industry and uh because they got to you know movies would be produced by um the specific companies so then certain movie theaters couldn't show certain movies and it's not it's not any obviously anything like that nowadays well, actually but it there does are, feel like there are some from. exclusivity deals that do still yeah, happen right right and i think things like that and sort of how you have the mcu um like kind of cornering the whole blockbuster market and obviously you have christopher nolan still making these huge movies that make an insane amount of money but he's kind of just part of that like monopoly i'm just saying with quotations there um and it just feels like if you go to the movie theater there's a chance you might see something uh like that feels new and creative but a lot of the time you're gonna get like very similar movies every year and that's not to say that like christopher nolan can't make something like good because i think um he's he has his his fans and i think despite making blockbusters asterisk here neither of us have seen tenet yet but we will be yeah at some point in the future watching it yeah but um like he makes blockbusters but i still think they're they're more worth watching than than another like crappy uh, remake or something like that. Christopher Nolan still tries to make interesting movies, and I think that's that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, and I, you know, everyone has to start somewhere. So like, is Tarantino, Tarantino, Nolan, um, Fincher? They don't make bad movies. Uh, they're they're just a lot more expensive and a lot like a lot bigger. Yeah. Um, but definitely still like worth watching. But you know, Fincher, uh, another director who has embraced streaming as a delivery method for his movies with the release of Mank. Mm-hmm. So I mean, you know, just another example. And I mean, for years now, indie directors and uh, smaller directors, and and now you have the bigger directors uh, on the advent of the pandemic all making this switch. So. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's going to be really interesting to see. I the movie industry is is going nowhere, but I really do feel like we are in a a bold new era where uh anyone that wants to make a movie maybe has a shot and they maybe don't have to go through the Hollywood machine to do it. Right. So anyway, moving on, uh we have one more piece of news uh that I just thought would be interesting to share. Uh, on a little bit more of a of a light note, uh, Shrek has been added. Shrek, of course, the the seminal DreamWorks classic, has been added to the Library of Congress. Yes. Yeah. I uh, honestly, I'm I'm happy. I'm happy for it because uh, obviously Shrek has this this interesting reputation now, but I do think it's 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 um. It's just a genuinely good film, the first two. Yeah, I, and, I, uh, I agree. Yeah. They were very funny. I enjoyed them a lot as a kid, and I, I still can find things to enjoy about them as an adult. Uh, I do find it 
hilarious to think about what people, you know, 100, 200, 300 years down the line, you know, when they're looking back through these archives, what they're going to think of Shrek when, when they see it. And obviously this fact that we considered it to be important enough to our culture to, to archive it in the Library of Congress, it, it's a funny thought. Right. It's, I, I absolutely think it deserves to be there. It's definitely a weird, like, it's it feels weird surrounded by all the other movies that are in the the libraries of congress but i guess it's it's supposed to it's supposed to be films that are culturally culturally significant and shrek has obviously uh gone above and beyond it's uh what it needs to do to culture um so you yeah. know when i was looking into this story a little bit more and i actually visited the library of congress's website I noticed that ants, that's with a Z, oh, is also yeah. in, in the Library of Congress. So I'm not really quite confident in their review process. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I'm pretty sure A Bug's Life is more culturally significant uh, movie about bugs that's also animated. But hey, you know, who am I to judge? Ants was a fine movie. <laughs> I don't know. I'm I'm looking I'm looking now at all of the all the films that have been added in the last few years and I, I'm not sure I don't I don't know what it is, but I, I don't know. I guess I, I won't argue with the Library of Congress. Well, yeah, I mean it's either way more rigorous than Criterion's process or all it takes is like a five dollars and a handshake. I don't know. <laughs> God, ants over Bugs Life? That's well, I don't, and I don't know. I didn't dig deep enough to see if a Bugs Life is on there. Uh it, it very well could be, but I do think that ants in addendum is is an odd choice. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. It's it's been a very long time since I've seen ants, but unless I'm misremembering, it's not some culturally significant, you know, beautiful work of art in any way. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I don't know. Maybe maybe we're wrong. Maybe we'll have to revisit it and uh, find out our new favorite movie. I'm not yeah, sure. I don't know. I'm down. <laughs> All right. So moving on well, from the news, uh, as we said earlier, Kobe and I watched Sunset Boulevard, which should be pretty well known by anyone who is listening to us. Uh, it is a actual seminal classic in American filmmaking and in filmmaking in general. Um, it's, it's one of those movies like Citizen Kane that any movie bro you run into, you will hear uh, talk about more than likely positively, but I'm, I'm sure that there's all kinds of different opinions. Um, but Kobe and I, we had not seen it. We've seen Citizen Kane. Uh, we watched that together about a year ago, but we had not seen Sunset Boulevard. So we decided for our first official episode one that there would be no better movie, no more important movie uh, to, to give our time and to talk about than Sunset Boulevard. Kobe, I'm going to let you 
take the reins first here and you can share how you felt, what your thoughts were. I'm very curious to hear myself. Uh, so you can go right ahead. Well, um, I'll begin with this. I am positively, uh, I'm very positive about my uh, experience with this film as compared to what I went in expecting. Um, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of the noir genre. I haven't seen much, but it's, it's not really my style, I guess. But, um, I think, I think this film is certainly important and I think it has a lot of staying power, um, because it feels very much like a comprehensive blueprint of what a lot of filmmakers would be working off in the future. Um, like I'll be watching and I'm thinking, oh, that feels kind of cliched. But then I like think about it in my head and I'm like, oh, well, it's probably not a cliche. It's probably started with this movie. And in that regard alone, um, you can tell why this is so important because of how many people it's inspired with its um, uh, dialogue and this story of a kind of a grandiose delusion in the in the place of um uh, i guess hollywood you know uh in showbiz and how you have a fall from grace when you used to be this big important person and now you're kind of just living alone or not alone but you're living by yourself and the only thing that really interests you anymore is when some new guy just happens to stumble in and you have to drench him of or take all the life away from him and sort of just oh, yeah, live I'm off gonna, of I'm his... I'm going to interrupt you for a second, too. There will be spoilers, by the way, anyone who's yeah. listening. Uh, it, it's a 60-year-old movie, so if you, if you care, go watch it. Uh, it's easy to find. Uh, if you don't care keep on listening, but we are going to be talking spoilers. Yeah. Um, I do recommend seeing this regardless of, uh, I guess your opinions on, on like the golden era of Hollywood. So just saying, if you don't want spoilers, please just tune out now. But as I was saying, um, you kind of have this, this character in the place of, or not in the play. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm forgetting right now. Uh, Norma, Norma Desmond. And she's kind of just looking for something to attach herself to because she used to be she used to be great. She used to have this great life and she's rich and she she still is rich and everyone wrote fan letters to her and everyone loved her and she was just like this super big important silent film actress, but as soon as the uh the innovation of sound comes in a film she kind of fades into into obscurity mm -hmm. and she uses um joe joe gillis as like this this life force to just suck away his life to sort of benefit hers she she likes his youth and she likes his uh he's he's sort of like a representation of modern hollywood at least modern uh, compared to what she was in modern, was, you know, the early modern at the present when this movie was made, you know, yeah. he's like an upstart, uh, writer. 
Mm-hmm. And I I definitely like it. I, I like the movie a lot because of its um it's like this this really good uh fall from grace story. Yeah. Um and like every time I watch a movie now from like any point in time regarding you know uh this sort of story it's like i'm going to think about this movie Mm -hmm. okay uh yeah well so so i loved it i i thought it was awesome um i enjoy the noir genre from what i've seen so far um I haven't seen one of those movies that I haven't liked, but this one was, it was phenomenal. I, it, it's, it's this whole, you know, vision of, of a dream, you know, like Norma is a sleepwalker. She, she literally lives in a dream of what her life used to be. She can't move on. She's trapped in this massive palatial estate uh, of her own volition, but she's like a mummy, and and the, the the estate is her tomb, and and she hides in there, denying the reality that the world just doesn't care about her anymore, that the world has moved on, that the the culture has moved on. I mean, and 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 you see this time in and time again, and Hollywood is a it is a corporate entity, so it's always ready to move on to the next culture, to continue the proliferation of money. And so sound is, you know, like you said, it's this next big innovation. And I I loved when uh, Norma and Joe and Max, when they went to the Paramount movie lot and they met with the, the old director that she used to work with, who made all these silent movies, well, he's someone who has moved on. He's moved on with the culture. He's still making movies, and they're and they're still popular, and he's still relevant. Mm-hmm. And it cuts this like really sharp contrast with Norma, who refuses to move on and thinks that she is still this international superstar that everyone loves. And we see a little bit of this like interesting. Uh, idea of this popularity that she had when, again, they're at the Paramount lot and, and they're on the soundstage for this new movie that Mills is shooting. And uh, I want to say he was probably the gaffer. He's up in the rafters and he recognizes Norma. It's, it's also a, a former coworker of hers who obviously must have worked on those old pictures. And he turns the light on her. And she glows underneath this light. And all of these people surround her and they're so impressed with the fact that she's there. But there's something that's not quite right about it. It's not like they're really enjoying her presence as a person, but more as like a cultural relic. It's like they're in a museum and and she's in an exhibit. So I, I just, the whole like segment at the Paramount stage was fantastic. And, and we of course learned there that uh, earlier in the movie, they, they go to the Paramount stage, of course. I should hit on some of the notes of the movie first, but 
uh, Norma is trying to re-break into Hollywood. She wants to have a a rebirth in in a sense and star in this script, this screenplay that she's been working on and that she's been having Joe edit uh, as a princess, uh, a role that undoubtedly she is probably much too old to fill. But again, because she's sleepwalking, she still sees herself as this, you know, bright, bright eyed, golden idol of years past. So of course, of course, she's the princess. Of course, she has to be. But so anyway, she's she's trying to get this screenplay made. And, you know, they're getting calls from the Paramount lot. So it's it's sounding promising, at least to her. But then when they get there, they find out that no, in fact, this script that she was passing around, they all hated and pretty much immediately uh, tossed in the trash. No, the real star here is her massive uh, gas guzzling ancient automobile that she had made and upholstered in leopard print. They want this car for some movie that they're making. They don't give any kind of care about what she's doing. It's just that they want this car. They want to rent it from her. And so I loved that. I mean, even, even her enormous uh, stately stupid car is upstaging her at this point in terms of celebrity. And so, I mean, the movie, it's, it's really, it's, it's like a dream, but it's a dream that is just continuously being broken down. And, you know, we open this this film with Joe, who, like you said, represents this more modern character of Hollywood. But even he, you know, he's trying to make ends meet. He hasn't had a script picked up in over a year. Every script that he's turning in is some derivative schlock, so to speak, because he he, he wants money now. And he doesn't, you know, he doesn't have the time or the energy or the wherewithal to make something truly original. So instead, you know, all of these other ideas, these scripts that have been made, of course, they're bubbling forth in his head and he's putting his own spin on them. Needless to say, his plan for getting his baseball script, I don't even remember what he was wanting to call it, made, falls through. And, you know, he kind of just, he walks in, basically. He just walks into Norma's life. He stumbles upon this house. I mean, you know, he could have pulled into any house on Sunset Boulevard. He could have driven up any driveway. There's plenty of mansions there. But he, he manages to stumble upon this aging, derelict tomb. And, you know, he, he gets in there and he meets the odd characters who inhabit the estate and you know he 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 thinks he can manipulate them he thinks well here's a chance for me to enjoy the easy life for a little while i can make a little bit of money i just have to put up with this tripe script and mm -hmm. everything will be good well i mean almost immediately like he 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 they he, they give them this room on the property and immediately the next day uh, Max 
brings Max's uh, Norma's manservant, of course, uh, of which there he has a very interesting twist later in the movie that I also loved. But he's brought all of Joe's possessions into this room without asking Joe, without consulting. He's just gone in the night and done this. So this is kind of an alarm bell for Joe right away. But you know what? He, he pushes that aside and he keeps, he, he reads the script, edits it, and he, he tries to get Norma to cut out unnecessary scenes. But of course, any scene with her in it, which is the majority of them, has to be in there because of course she's the most important character in the movie. Um, and slowly but surely you realize that it isn't Joe who's doing the manipulating. It's Norma. Norma has latched on to Joe and she's, as you said, kind of leeching off of his energy. He's this, you know, young, attractive, charismatic man. And, and she's just pulling him in deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into her web. And, you know, manipulating in, in these just not at all subtle ways, but they work on Joe because while Joe is enough of a dirtbag to try and manipulate this wealthy old, you know, movie star, uh, isn't quite enough of an asshole to leave her if she's going to kill herself. <laughs> You know, he, right. he does try at a certain point to, I mean, it's not even the right thing, but he's so wrapped up in this web already that I guess, you know, he can't leave. He's basically trapped. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, he, he takes his little leaves of absence of Norma, you know, he, he, and he starts to fall in love and Norma just starts to become more and more terrifyingly demanding of him. Um, and it's around this point in the movie that we have this really interesting twist with Norma's manservant, Max. Max, through the entire movie, has been this really, like, interesting, mysterious character. You know, he's, he's of course, this kind of vision of the classic butler, but he seems overly attached to Norma. And he does all of these, these things for Norma that maintain this dream that she's living in. He, he maintains the lie basically, you know, like he's, he, and he reveals in this moment that he, he's the one or well, Joe, I suppose rightfully guesses that uh, all of the fan letters that Norma supposedly has still been getting have been coming from Max. You know, he's, he does all of these little effects to keep her happy. And it is then that we learn that Max was not always Norma's manservant, but in fact, he was a director who discovered her when she was 16 years old and in essence made her into a star. He was this promising upstart director and he made her into a star. And he, he was beyond that, he was her first husband. And so this twist just came as a huge shock for me. I wasn't predicting it at all, uh, but it's awesome and, and totally, totally interesting because Max is like the, the, where, where Joe could go 
he's like a vision of where Joe could wind up. That's actually like exactly what I've been thinking for the last uh, couple minutes. Um, that's one thing I really did love about this movie is that you kind of have Max as this, well, obviously eventually when you learn that uh, he was her first husband and he was a, this great director, um, he's kind of, like you said, he's a vision of what um, uh, Joe could be if he stays with Norma. Uh, he's like throwing away his career. He's going to stick with all these these bad scripts and he's not going to get anywhere. And he's going to just grow old like um, like well, Max. Of course, you know, he's, and... he's well paid for it. And so he doesn't really have, <laughs> you know, he's right. covering him in gifts. Right. So it's it's more of like a superficial life. You're not getting any uh, actual enlightenment or enjoyment. You're just uh, you're living comfortably. Sure. But you're not really going to enjoy right. your life. It's very much Whereas... the profile of the gigolo. Right. Whereas like Betty sort of she's the one helping him you know write a better script and create something like actually interesting and new and she, like he's sure she's the one that he's actually in love with she's uh this vision of a career that could actually go somewhere uh an actual enjoyment and fulfillment and he sort of takes the route that max did he throws away his career, he throws away what he wants to sort of stay with Norma and, uh, you know, keep her from offing herself. Right. Yeah, and I mean, you know, Betty is... She, you're right, she's like this vision of where a, a career in Hollywood could go, but it's because she's younger than Joe. She's like this fresh face. You know, she reminds Joe of where he was with his writing when he first showed up in LA. And so her like young vision is bringing all of this life back into Joe's writing. And, you know, so at a certain point he does, he wants to leave. He wants to be done with whatever charade he's been living. But, mm -hmm. you know, again, Norma continues to, you know, completely dominate him basically. Mm -hmm. And even to the, to, to the point where, he brings Betty to Norma's house at the end of the movie. And he, he basically, you know, releases her, gives her the cold shoulder because he, he shows what he's been doing and, and why he's a bad man and why she shouldn't care about him anymore. And that she should just go mm -hmm. back to her fiance and be done with him. But in that moment, it's not that he's made the decision to stay with Norma permanently then. No, he, he's decided right. that he's going to leave too, but he's cutting all ties because neither neither situation that he was going down were were good and i think at a certain point he understood that and and realized that he needed to break away from it entirely and of course you know this is where we get the the great tragedy at the end of the movie where he's made the decision to leave norma and he's departing and she, in a crime of passion, shoots him in the back. And we get the uh, scene that the movie opens on, Joe floating in the pool. Um, which, I mean, that, that scene, if you want to talk about like famous movie scenes, that movie's been referenced so many times in so many pieces of media. Um, I can't even count. It's, it's, it's a really 
important scene, I guess. Um, but then I, I love what happened after that, too, because, you know, all of the media and the police, they descend on Norma's mansion. And in these final moments, they give Norma what she wants. They give her another walk in front of the camera. They put the lights on her. Uh, they, they give her what she wants. She gets to do this grand performance as she descends the stairs. And it's almost in that moment, and it, and it probably is reality because of how we sensationalize um, violence and this type of thing in the media. You know, I mean, Joe, in his narration, describes the media as vulturous. Uh, I, I don't forget exactly what he, or I don't remember exactly what he says, but he, he calls them what they are. Exactly mm -hmm. right, exactly as his narration suggests, they will sensationalize her. And in that final moment, even as she can barely recognize where she is, as the delusion uh, and the lie uh, expand, <laughs> probably never to release her, uh, she's almost reborn a star. Mm -hmm. And that's what we leave the movie with, you know, her looking into the camera and posing for us. Yeah, I definitely like that last shot because it's like, um, like you said, she's she's never going to be let go by this delusion. And uh, she has you can see it all in her face. Gloria Swanson, um, Norma Desmond's actress. She 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 has like really amazing yeah. Uh, acting with her with her face throughout this whole mm -hmm. film, and and it really comes out in that last moment. And um, well, and I just, I just like how the just, film. Just a second, sorry to interrupt you, but this acting that she does with her face—that's a really interesting point to hit on, because Norma many times throughout the course of the movie laments, obviously, the fact that Hollywood has this new sensation with sound, because she says that. Well, you know, they didn't they didn't want her when she needed to talk, but she could act with her face. She makes a huge point about acting with your face and acting mm -hmm. with your body language, essentially. Um, so it's it's it is interesting, I think, that uh the the actress who played Norma managed to really capture that that essence of Norma's character. And uh as I was saying, the like the end of the film isn't necessarily a fade out. It's like it's like a dream. It's like um, it's like whirring and shaking around, and I I definitely like that too because the whole film has like a dreamlike quality, and uh, um, the fact that Norma kind of she only ever goes a couple places through the entire film, whether it's her house or inside the car or to the to the set. It's like her life only revolves around uh, being a star. So she doesn't, um, she doesn't really go anywhere else. She's like, um, like you said, a relic. She's an artifact that shouldn't be, uh, shouldn't be seen in the, the public. It should just mm -hmm. be in a museum in terms of her home or whatever it yeah. may be. And I mean, you know, like I her her delusion obviously just goes so deep. I mean, she has. Uh, mm -hmm. a, a theater in her big, massive, opulent living room, which, I mean, a, a personal theater in the 1950s would have just been an insane luxury. 
Um, but what does she use it for? Just to watch right. her old movies, things that she's in. Um, and and you know she obviously makes Joe sit there and watch those with her. So it's her delusion runs really deep. Joe describes her as a sleepwalker, and you know specifically he has a really interesting and good line about how you don't wake a sleepwalker. Um, and that concept kind of continues through the movie. And truly, I don't think that Norma ever really wakes up into reality. I think that the sleepwalking that she's doing, it continues right up until she gets her face in the camera. I think that, you know, as after she kills Joe, it's that's, that's it. That's done. Any chance, any hope that she might've had of coming out of her delusion and re-entering the world, accepting the fact that she just isn't famous anymore, not like she was, is gone. And forever now, she's stuck in that dream. And that's that's that final shot being so dreamlike. I think it's just, it's telling us this is, this is, we're ending with the dream because the dream hasn't ended, so to speak. Yeah. Um, I think I'm, I'm, I'm certainly pleasantly surprised because, um, I didn't go in with a negative point of view, uh, like wanting to hate it or anything. Um, but I definitely liked it a lot more than I thought. It you was. had me worried before we watched this one. Cause you, you, you had told me, you know, that you don't appreciate <laughs> yeah. these film noirs quite as much as I do. And, uh, but you know, I mean, right. if, if, if it did happen that you didn't like it, well, that would have led to an interesting discourse, uh, separately, but I am, I'm happy to hear that you enjoyed mm-hmm. it. And I'm happy to hear that you enjoyed the same aspects about it that I did. And, you know, if any of you have continued listening and you didn't listen to our spoiler warning earlier, regardless, please take the time to see this movie because it, it really is important, I think. It, it tells these little messages about Hollywood and fame and how we, how we treat famous people that are, are still super relevant. And honestly, with the messaging that this movie has towards Hollywood at the time that this came out, I'm just really shocked that Billy Wilder took as deep of a political cut at Hollywood as he did. You know, this was still very much the golden age of Hollywood. But I mean, this movie, it, it, does, it operates kind of like Mulholland Drive is a pretty scathing critique of the reality that is Hollywood. Yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely interesting. Um, especially with, uh, well, I've, as I've only seen like Citizen Kane and, and, uh, Sunset Boulevard now, um, in terms of that general time period, both films have this like fall from grace and this sort of like almost as if, uh, whether it's Charles Foster Kane or Norma Desmond, they're like living in the past and they're, they're living for the glory days and it is sort of their downfall. And uh, I definitely, I definitely enjoy that a lot in both films. Well, and, and, you know, bringing up Citizen Kane, I think is an interesting point too, because Citizen Kane very much is a movie about it's, it's, it's this, it's asking this question of, can you ever like truly know a man? Like, you know, we're, we're learning about Charles Foster Kane and do we really know Charles Foster Kane. Do we really understand him? And you can kind of even say the same thing about Norma because we never, I don't know that we ever really see the real Norma because she's so wrapped up in this 
reality that she's built up around herself, you know, this dream that I don't even know if the real Norma is there anymore. <laughs> you know, she's Norma Desmond, the actress. Now she's not Norma Desmond, the person she ceased to be that uh, a long time ago or so it seems to me. And, and that, of course, like I say, it goes into that whole relic territory too of like, you know, I guess is she at that point, I, it's a harsh thing to say, but is she good for anything other than being this relic of old Hollywood? <laughs> but yeah, fantastic, 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 fantastic film. Uh, I very much enjoyed it. I'll be doing a probably a write-up on Letterboxd, but yep, very much enjoyed. Can you give me a, a rating, Kobe? We can both give our ratings in a numerical sense. Um, well, I think originally I was thinking something maybe like a three and a half, but that doesn't sound, I don't know, that sounds a little, I'm thinking probably a four, honestly, four to five. Okay. I'm at a, I'm definitely at a four and a half, closer to a five than a four. I, yeah, I'd say I'm closer to four and a half now uh, than I, than I am closer to a three and a half. Awesome. Well, so now we'll have to pick something else that is hopefully as enduring and interesting as this for next episode. It's, it's, it's a downward <laughs> slope from here. Next episode. <laughs> what, what, what should we watch? Oh, I love Guru. See? Love Guru. Excellent. We talked about Shrek at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> Mike Myers, uh, best film. We'll watch that next. It definitely won't be Shrek. All, all, roads. Roads, lead to all roads lead to Mike Myers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Uh, hopefully, no, thank we you. were able to entertain you. That's all we got for you. Bye. Bye-bye.